Barack and Michelle Obama met when she supervised his summer internship. Bill and Melinda Gates crossed paths in Microsoft's company parking lot. And of course, we all know the true love story shared between Dunder Mifflin's Jim Halpert and Pam Beasley. Why, even I found love under the fluorescent lights and amongst the office cubicles. And guess what? We even kept it a secret. That is until now. Hey, why don't we give her a call? Hello? Hi, Stephanie. It's Jeff Livingston. We dated while at It's great to hear your voice. Oh, it looks like something's wrong with the line. Well, we'll check in later. Romance in the workplace. It's what we're talking about today. I'm Jeff Livingston, and this is ADP's Insights at Work podcast. Let's dive in. This is the podcast that looks at what's happening in the HR world, takes your questions, and studies the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. In a time when our professional and personal lives co-mingle now more than ever, why, it's only natural that work relationships happen. In fact, one-third of working Canadians either are now or have been involved in a romantic work relationship. It makes sense after all. I mean, we're sharing all those long hours by the soft green glow of the photocopy machine. Oh, I couldn't think of a more romantic setting. While merging romance and love might sound like an ideal situation, navigating office politics and HR policies presents their own pitfalls. And to help us steer clear of those modern workplace obstacles, today we're speaking with Lisa Stam, Employment, Labor, and Contracts Lawyer with the offices of Spring Law. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, I see that before obtaining your law degree at Dalhousie, you graduated from the University of Toronto with a specialty in medieval history. So I'm sure this question must come up all of the time. Lisa, what's more historically accurate? The Lord of the Rings series or the Game of Thrones? Ooh, very good question. I love it. Now, the fact that neither exists in our, our realm gives me some freedom on that answer for sure. There's, um, there's an Alfred the Great um, Netflix series that people should be watching that seems to have a lot of historical accuracy, actually. So it sounds like what you're saying is there might not have been dragons or invisibility rings back then. Well, I suppose I'll just have to take your word on it. But... I'll be checking with my reliable sources after this podcast. And by reliable sources, I mean my Blu-ray DVD collection. But let's talk about the HR realm. Despite being in the midst of a pandemic, dating hasn't been canceled. Relationships haven't been canceled. In fact, the dating apps Tinder and OkCupid are on fire and seeing a rise in new subscribers by 15%. In fact, Tinder recorded a record-breaking 3 billion Tinder swipes in just one day on March 29th. With less of a stigma around online dating, I wonder if office workers are more leery to enter into the office relationship. Lisa, what have you seen in the workplace with your clients? Has there been a growing need for HR support around romance in the workplace? 
was it three billion you said on March 29? That's amazing. First of all, I'm still thinking about that number. That's that's a lot of um, people reaching out for other human beings. Um, I do think that with with us all moving remote and not seeing each other, not you know flirting with each other around the water cooler as much, that we're able to you know employees the workforce is able to engage in adult consensual relationships without the prying eyes of their manager without their co-workers making a big deal about it so i i if there's more i don't know how we can even track that and figure that out it does require deliberate interactions with people so i, I doubt that it's that much more than the the sort of natural organic um, hookups in the workplace. Okay, let's look beyond recent pandemic times then. Lisa, how have you seen romance in the workplace change over the years? You know, if you picture what the, especially an office workplace looked like, I don't know, anyone who's seen Mad Men, for example, let's say 40 or 50 years ago, it, it was irrelevant. And the power imbalance was widely accepted, right? It was men could just sleep with whoever they wanted. <clears throat> and they were the boss. So there was no need for a policy. Um, you just fired the secretary if it became dramatic. So it, it it's new that we need policies. And as a woman, I'm delighted that we need policies because that power imbalance is being acknowledged. It's being um, recognized. And I think HR managers are really starting to see how, how, um, broad the impact of, of workplace policy, uh, workplace romances can be if there isn't a close eye on whether it's consensual. It's interesting how you brought up Mad Men. So when brainstorming about this podcast, our team talked about how way back then it was almost expected that the female might enter the workforce not to find a career, but to find a husband. Yeah, it's true. Go get their MRS at the workplace, right? Um, I, I, for sure. And it was widely accepted that you could just marry your secretary, but then she would stop working. That was the, also the assumption in the fifties, women always worked before and after the fifties. It's just that we sort of romanticize that American dream moment when everyone was, you know, making casseroles in the kitchen with a nice apron on that never looked dirty. I, that that's, that little moment in time is a weird blip. And I think, yeah, there probably was no problem with, with women hooking up in the workplace. When taking into account the Me Too movement, more complexity has been added to the conversation. Allegations of harassment are now met with skepticism and the presumption of innocence has almost disappeared in many cases. Now, of course, this can make for a more confrontational workplace. So Lisa, let me ask this. Is it in the employer's best interest in order to maintain a sense of harmony just to ban office relationships altogether? So I have a practical answer and a legal answer. So my practical answer is that it's a super dumb idea to ban it altogether because everyone will just go underground. You can't fight human nature and it is what it is. It depends on the demographic of your workplace. If it's a whole bunch of 20 year olds, then good luck on banning anything. You know, if you're running a restaurant, it's notorious in restaurants where it's late at night, people go drinking, it's banning it is, is futile. Um, legally, should you? I, you know, I don't think that either, I don't think that you should legally either um, for the practical reasons, but also um, there's nothing inherently illegal 
about two consensual adults hooking up in the workplace and having a, a mature romance. There's nothing wrong with that. The, the legal problems always arise when there's an imbalance of power. Lisa, you called out the hospitality sector. Are there different rules for different environments? Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's a professional environment where everyone's on the same footing, you know, like a, a you've got a department full of accountants and they're all accountants. That's maybe not even a great example because there's not going to be a lot of drama if anything does happen. But with a whole bunch of designers and your creative team, then <laughs> might be a problem. But it, it's always about imbalance. That's the issue. Uh, and so I think, you know, some industries are worse than others. You know, if it's a factory with a whole bunch of workers in the back and, uh, you know, on the lines and uh, how do you determine consent? Are they aware of their rights? Are they empowered to stand up for themselves? Are they empowered to say no to their frontline supervisor? Who so also- it's, it, you know, it, it still constantly comes back to that. If I can just um, put my pure, boring legal hat on for a second. Can I just read to you uh, four short lines from OSHA from uh, as an example of the Ontario Occupational Health and Safety Act? So this is, you know, it's it's a a similar version across the country, but uh, sexual harassment is specifically defined in the Ontario legislation. And it's it. uh, So workplace sexual harassment means making a sexual solicitation or advance where the person making the solicitation or advance is in a position to confer, grant, or deny a benefit or advancement to the worker, and the person knows or ought reasonably to know that the solicitation or advance is unwelcome. So, I mean, if it's welcome and it's two people, for example, if you're in different corners of the organization and one's at a director level and one's, you know, an entry level, but they're in very different corners of the organization, the manager's not in any position to grant, uh, confer, deny a benefit. The, um, and if it's welcome, these are adults in a free country, right? It's, it's, it's fine. Uh, as soon as they start to be in the same department or there's hints of, of no thank you, uh, but it's hard to say no to your boss and, uh, without worrying about career. So it, it, I don't want to, you know, beat the same drum, but it does come back to that. I, if there's consent and there's no power imbalance, then, then go nuts. There's no problem. So again, it really comes back to that imbalance of power and also the importance of communicating what is acceptable and what's unacceptable behavior in the workplace. Yeah, always. It always comes back to that. You know, we uh, had several clients in 2020 who were on the um, on the wrong side of all of this. And we were representing them as people being investigated in a harassment complaint. And obviously I'm not gonna give any details whatsoever, but um, it, it's a really steep hill that people have to climb. It, it's a good thing that there's, um, that there isn't this uh, assumption that you know, she asked for it or that she was wearing the wrong thing or that she behaved in a way that invited it. I'm glad all that BS is long gone, uh, sort of not, it's, it's not long gone, but (laughs) hopefully it's, it's gone ish. Um, and certainly is gone at law, but practically in the workplace, there's still, um, there are still examples now where, uh, not still, but there are now examples where uh, people know it's a really effective complaint to launch. 
because it, it it escalates quickly into a sexual harassment complaint and investigation. And unlike 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, it's taken very seriously now in most workplaces. Um, so it's, you know, this is why I think the greatest message we can give is to managers to just stop because you, you can't get away with it anymore. Lisa, let's run through this scenario of what happens when an employee comes knocking on HR's door with a sexual harassment complaint. As an HR professional, what are those crucial steps that I need to be doing when this happens? So the first thing is, if you can, get it in writing. Ask the complainant to provide you with a, a written version of it because it, it very well could be they'll you know, pull you aside in the hallway or send you a side message or a text to try and keep it off the server. Um, and, and that just puts the HR person in a bad position. So get it in writing and and talk to them what that means. You know, that that it, this this will trigger a formal complaint that there's a proactive duty on employers to keep their workers safe. So there isn't a choice. And so, you know, as long as they're aware of that, that this will trigger a complaint. And then here's what it looks like. If there's a workplace policy that sets out the whole procedure, just invite everyone to take a look at that um, and just follow the steps of the procedure. So normally an investigation, you, you, you crystallize what the scope of the complaint is in writing. If you decide to do it in-house, then that's, that's, you know, the, the, the Bible of your investigation, that's the thing that you are investigating. It's not all these other side issues that come up. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's that specific complaint in front of you. Uh, and that's, I think where investigations go off is that the scope becomes bananas and goes all over the place. So you keep the scope narrow and then you start investigating the, the minimal number of people that you need to investigate to gather all the facts around it. So it's always about containing it. Um, it. You know, if it's a sexual harassment complaint, that's personal too, right? We're not talking about whether someone breached the uniform code. You know, it's 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 a personal thing. The parties involved may also want to keep it very contained and discreet. So you you know, interview the minimum number you of people you need at the and you you know you start with the complainant you you ask him or her what witnesses they would like to um um, it, um have as part of it then you talk to the respondent you you let them know all about the the actual complaint so that there's there's no surprise there's no ambush let them come to the meeting a bit prepared it'll be a, a better investigation now if the two parties are working together in the same department and 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 if it's like above average or i don't know like in the world of of complaints if it's like in the top half let's say of bad whatever that is then you need to start thinking about whether to suspend them for a little bit because they shouldn't be working in the same place together um and that's sexual harassment or any kind of harassment you, you know the, the the accused bully the accused harasser uh, maybe shouldn't be in the workplace for a moment while you conduct the investigation, while you honor the person who's um, been suffering through this, while you figure it out um, with pay, if you can, because if you do it without pay, you're breaching their employment contract because you're not paying them for uh, moments when they're prepared to provide services. So it, it has to be with pay uh, and and get to work, get get the investigation done and over with, get a report done as quickly as you can. 
when the report is done, whether it's external or internal, then you you come up with some sort of executive summary that you would give to the uh, to the parties. They're not entitled at law to the entire report, which is always very controversial in every single workplace. Uh, but you give them a summary of it, and 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 be clear what the the conclusion is that I mean, in, in, in Ontario uh, and and in, in a few other provinces, it's it's specifically required. But as part of due process, you you let them know what the ultimate finding of fact was or is, and then uh, if when you get some legal advice on that, or you make some internal decisions without legal advice on that that neutral finding of fact, then you move to to a separate step. It could be the same person, but you have to wear a different hat for this. Now we apply, you know, the employment law to this finding of fact report. Is it discipline? Is, are they completely exonerated? Is the other person making stuff up or do we fire them? I mean, there, there's all kinds of different options. And, and then, and then, yeah, then there's a, a conclusion to it. So you suggest getting the report complete as quickly as you can. How long does that take? I've, I've seen it, you know, uh, all wrap up nice and smoothly within a month and I've seen it take six months, you know, and, and I actually, um, I've also seen it take well over a year or two and, and uh, it was kind of an extenuating circumstance, but it, there's stuff that happens. It's, you know, are they unionized or not unionized? Who's involved? You know, is there other stuff happening in the workplace? In 2020, did COVID hit? You know, there's lots of reasons why things get slowed down. But the the I think the universal rule is the longer it takes, the more disruptive and painful it is for everybody involved, from the investigator to the HR person to the to the parties. It's Short and sweet is always the better route. Two things that stand out to me that you mentioned are number one, to involve the minimum amount of people possible. And number two, that you redact some of the company's report. Now, can you just tell our listeners why you wouldn't want to share all of the insights and findings from that report with all parties involved? You know, this is this is one of the more complex areas of, of workplace investigations now, because um, if I was a complainant, I was sure as heck would want the whole thing. I would want to know exactly what's happening in my case. The thing is, when that investigator is now investi uh, interviewing all the different witnesses, some for me, some for the respondent, I'm not entitled to all of those details as a complainant. And it feels very counterintuitive to most employees. Um, for the respondent, they're not entitled to every single detail, um, you know, if they are either exonerated or just facing some discipline, but staying in the workplace, it's not beneficial to everybody if they're given every single detail of all the reasons why everybody hates them. You know, it, it doesn't help anything. So uh, a summary, you know, a, a, two, a one or two page summary of the finding of facts and the conclusions and, and the consequence. What are we going to do now? It It, it certainly satisfies the legislative piece, but it also... Um, I think there's a whole bunch of big picture reasons why that is the better route for employers. Now, sometimes, I mean, like the Jean Gameshi, uh, report from a few years ago with the CBC, that was online and, and a beautifully written report, you know, and, and, but that was a, a business or, you know, a big picture deliberate choice by the CBC to do that because it, 
all kinds of policy reasons i'm sure for them like it, it's just a very different situation he was so high profile the whole case was high profile it i think to hide the results would have been tricky if you're looking at just a standard smaller workplace investigation you don't need to publish that online at all lisa what's your recommendation when two employees who've fallen in love work in the same department have you seen organizations force one of those lovebirds to leave that department or even leave the company I've definitely seen it. Where it becomes legal, with air quotes that you can't see on a podcast, is that um, as soon as it's it's baked into a workplace policy that's properly rolled out and signed off on, that policy becomes a term and condition of employment. And so it becomes one of the rules of the workplace that the employer can enforce. So if it's a really draconian thou shalt not have any relationships in the workplace, you know, it's, it, it gets messy. What I like to see instead is poli are policies that are a little more nuanced than that, where they say, you know, they address this consent and, and power imbalance issue and, uh, and really, really invite disclosure without penalty. I think that's really the key piece here. If, if the person is scared to come forward because they might lose their job, then they're not going to come forward. So having just a, an adult conversation about it all with your HR and knowing that you are in a workplace where you're allowed to do that, but that there might be some consequences. You know, you shouldn't be working with your manager. It's not good for either party and it's not good for the other colleagues in the, uh, in, in that group or department. So if it's a huge organization, it's much easier to handle. It's not necessarily going to impact someone's career. If it's a really small startup where there's always lots of drama and anyways, <laughs> it's going to be tricky. It's going to be quite tricky. And, and I've certainly seen it, um, where one person just, you know, ultimately decides this is a long term in love relationship and it's worth it to just move to another company. Ah, the things we do for love, Lisa. That doesn't happen very often. I've definitely seen it and everyone lives happily ever after. But um, more often than not, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a hard conversation to have. Now, this is assuming both adults are single and available, right? So if you're looking at affairs, that's a whole other conversation, I think, because then you know it's not going to end well. <laughs> Tell me what you really think, Dr. Ruth. Is there a difference for the HR professional to make between a romantic relationship in the workplace involving two single consenting adults or two married consenting adults? Well, although they just don't happen to be married to each other. See, I, I, I think HR and companies, I think they get themselves into trouble when they get too judgy, judgy and, and, and start dictating people's morality. I, I, if you can, tie it down to more of a business rationale and a practical, you know, employee morale kind of question more than this isn't nice for your, your, your spouse that you're cheating on. They're not, they're not your employees. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's about these two. So do you deal with it differently? Um, but it's still, you know, it'll come back to whether or not, um, it's disrupting the workplace. So I think, that's not a morality issue. That's a practical issue. Well, what if having an affair at the workplace contradicts the publicly stated values of the organization? Ooh. I mean, I guess if you're like some sort of religious 
based charity or something like that, maybe, but I, I, th I think you're still bumping up into judgy, judgy morality that it is it, that those ethics morality that may not be shared in, you know, um, if, if one adult is in a very unhappy marriage and they decide to leave it because they've fallen in love with another person, you know, some people may say that is no big deal. There's many very happy movies written about that. Or other people might say that is, you know, utterly against their religious beliefs and a very big morality issue. And I think trying to um, tie any of that to a company's value system. Hey, I mean, I obviously ethics and honesty and um, treating people well are all super important core values that I hope every company has. But uh, romantic affairs, I would kind of dodge that bullet a wee bit. Lisa, a 2019 ADP poll identified that 38% of working Canadians who were involved in a romantic relationship kept it secret from HR. Lisa, to encourage a safe and accepting workplace, how should employers communicate romance in their workplace policies to their employees? You know, I, I I would actually just not make a great big deal out of it. Include it in your regular training. Hopefully you have some sort of annual thing where you, uh, you know, have some sort of pizza lunch to talk about your policies or some equivalent of that, or you, you, you email it around. Uh, but if you really go to town on making it a huge deal and link it to morality and, and all kinds of other heavy handed approaches, nobody's going to come forward. It doesn't matter what the policy says. And then you are driving everybody underground and, and making it worse and, and you know, uh, triggering the rumor mill. Uh, you're better off to include it in a policy of what the disclosure process looks like, what the, you know, examples of of consequences of that and and if the consequences are more nuanced consequences like you know um moving uh one of the parties off a project moving one of the parties into another department um things things that don't include firing them then at least it get, lets them know that truly it's okay now i can tell you there's lots of employment lawyers out there that would say you should just ban it all together and and then that way you can hang your hat on that hardcore rule and then sort of play it by ear if if it doesn't go well you can just you know resort to the rule if it if it stays very discreet and no one really is impacted by it then you you don't need to uh, pull out the rule but i i really prefer more adult discourse and and just letting letting nature happen if it happens Lisa, that same survey uncovered that 49% of working Canadians claim that their company doesn't have a formal policy that addresses workplace romance. What messages would you have for the owners and leaders of those companies? I do think it's important to have some sort of um, something around it in your workbook. Now, having said that, it, it, you know, if you're a smaller employer, it doesn't make sense to have 4,000 policies on everything. You know, it, it's, it, there is a, I, I think people should scale their policies. There's a core number of policies they ought to have, you know, in order to comply with legislation. But at some point you don't need a lot of the niceties and you, you, you roll out policies as they happen. If you're a small, if you, you know, you have like 10 employers or 10 employees, then do you really need to have a very comprehensive, no romance in the workplace policy? 
yeah, it's nice to have the, the 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 golden version of it, but it's at some point it's overkill. What I do think is important is that regardless of the size of your organization, that you make it super clear to your managers what they should be thinking about. Because I, I again, I, I I know I keep coming back to this, but if it's two people on the same level, it just doesn't matter. If it's two people that are one is reporting to the other, it's an issue. So you mentioned scaling HR activities. How important do you think is it for employers to have an employee handbook or an employee policy manual? I think it's super important because it's the law for some of it. <laughs> so, you know, it's always handy to comply with the law. There are certain provisions, not not all 1000 pages that some people have in their manual, but there are there are a handful of of um, pieces that are required under legislation in the various provinces across the country and, and territories. So it's, it, you know, some basics like, you know, um, health and safety and discriminate anti-discrimination. Uh, there, there are certain things that are basics that need to be in there. This, this whole issue around relationships, uh, you know, it's sort of in the nepotism bucket. It's in the, how we treat each other bucket. Um, it's related to, uh, you know, online engagement with each other, all these issues that sort of are, are part of respect in the workplace. And so I definitely think that everyone should have some sort of respect in the workplace component to their, their manual, but I'm not a fan of making it super granular and listing out every single possible consequence that you can and cannot do because your manual becomes out of date super quick especially if you're um, referencing technology pieces that, you know, become out of date. Um, but but it's hard to archive every single good and bad behavior. So I, I think more general concepts about respect and uh, harassment and bullying, it, it, a lot of it can fall under that. So Lisa, you mentioned technology. And in a lot of cases, well, technology doesn't always help those who might find themselves in an office romance. What should HR and employees be aware of when it comes to thinking about technology and romance in the workplace? Employees who engage and conduct a romantic or like highly sexual affair online on their workplace device are, are not making a decision because that's all evidence. It's all discoverable and it makes for juicy reading for the lawyers that get to deal with those cases. So, um, I, I you know, I, I think... We're in a world where uh, everybody wants to carve out privacy online because that's where we're all living. But the law has many years to catch up to that. And so if you leave your workplace or you're fired and you want to start some sort of lawsuit against your employer for harassment, for discrimination, for wrongful dismissal, whatever it might be, I think people need to know that everything on their workplace device is now discoverable evidence at law and uh, you know and then if you're caught deleting everything you're now obstructing the court so <laughs> that's a whole other problem for you so i i mean i i know i sound old by saying don't you know have text affairs but i i do think that that's not helpful to, for people to do that you're you're creating this long record of 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 all of it just pick up the phone old school or do a video if you need to that's fine but then it's not all recorded in writing or send a letter. Oh, that's so cute. Who's going to do that? <laughs> I think my wife would love it if I sent her a letter. <laughs> and then you mean PDF it and, and email it, right? True. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> 
So, okay, so talking about documenting things and not how I might send a love letter via PDF to my wife, but documenting the complete investigation process. How often do companies bring in a third-party expert to conduct the investigation? Is this really warranted by a company's HR staff and the employer? Yeah, so, you know, especially if you're a smaller organization where there isn't a neutral party, I'm actually, you know, as, as an employment lawyer, I've seen so many investigations that are so bloody expensive and go way out of scope and just get crazy. They're very disruptive and they just, they don't match the cost of the problem in the first place. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of if you can, it, like if the circumstances are such that you've got a neutral person and you've got some skill set to, to, to see if you can do it internally. Now, if it's the CEO, who is the the person who's the harasser or a very senior person you have to bring in a third party there i think that's just the way it goes but if you if if it's a large organization and there isn't a personal relationship between let's say the hr person and who who can conduct it and the and the people involved in the complaint then do an internal investigation i i think it's been some clever lawyer marketing over the last decade that's that's told the HR world that they can't do it. I don't agree. I think that's exactly what they're trained to do. A way to make the costs come down though, is to really help coordinate, help coordinate the meetings, you know, make sure that you, you know, you're offering up sort of that administrative time to help coordinate it all, um, provide information and charts and chronologies and documents upfront early on to just really help that investigator so they're not having to dig and follow up. That you can really impact the cost of the organization if you help not with the fact finding or the decision at all, but just with getting them the information they need to conduct the investigation. And then it's no different than any other kind of investigation. Uh, Lisa, can you share some learnings from when a company might've made a decision too fast in hopes to quickly rectify the situation? Yeah, I've, I've seen that a lot where it's, it's either baseless or it's just two very different interpretations of a similar situation, or it's all based on one single event that, uh, makes it really hard to come up with a great big, um, big picture plan. Is it an isolated incident or is it a, it's not a pattern if it's one. And then I've also seen where the HR really screws it up and they, they just, they're, they, they make it to say, I've seen it where they terminate the person and then do the investigation. I've seen where they, um, they gather all the information from the complainant and then they meet with the, uh, with the the um the respondent and fire them because they they this idea of hearing both sides of the story it, i cannot repeat that enough you know there's some latin phrase for it but hearing both sides is the critical piece and giving the respondent the benefit of the doubt um and so you know if if there isn't that um that careful process, 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 then yes, you're, you're really jeopardizing, potentially jeopardizing some reputation. So then what happens? Um, that can definitely impact if, for example, the complainant, um, is the, the finding in fact does support the complainant and then the respondent, the, the, the accused, um, not that's a criminal word, but the, the, the other person, if they end up getting fired, cause they truly did screw up and they, they behave badly. 
um, but meanwhile, the reputation is totally tarnished. That will all come up in the statement of claim in the wrongful dismissal claim, because I'm sure they will challenge whether or not it truly is a just cause termination or, you know, we'll fight for a larger package because, yeah, you know, they weren't perfect, but they didn't get any warning. They didn't know. They didn't know, you know, like all the typical reasons that they would put on the table. And and so that, you know, some bad faith damages or reputational damage type stuff might come up in the legal process. And then somewhere in between, I mean, that's an outsider. It's somewhere in between all that. Um, it really will typically inform the nature of the of the settlement negotiations and whether someone has leverage. If the company has really screwed up and, you know, gone to town on on telling everybody about the bad behavior or has failed to contain it, you can be sure that two things, if there is any sort of break in the relationship and they decide to um, go separate ways that you're really, you're exposed to illegal action. Secondly, you've probably at the very least, very demotivated one of your employees. And if they were, you know, a big revenue generator, good luck on them being particularly passionate for your company and, and they're likely to, to leave. So there's a business impact there for organizations. So it's, it really is in everyone's best interest. Actually, the third reason to, to, to really be mindful of reputational damage issues is you, if you decide to, to end the relationship, you know, you, you, um, how you characterize it, but if it's a termination, you want them to find a new job sooner rather than later because you want them to mitigate their damages. You want the, it's a win win if they can land a new role. It stops the bleeding of what that employer owes to them in any sort of you know notice period. So, and and then it it cools the temperature in the room. You know all all this. You know they they get to move on to a paid position instead of sitting around being angry plotting their revenge through um litigation all great advice lisa now before we wrap up with something a little different on today's podcast are there any parting words of wisdom that you have for the hr professional who's listening today remember that employees are adults they're adults and i you know i i our canadian workplace culture is is good in that front most of the time you know i think there is a a you know i find when i'm working with hr people in the states there tends to be more not that they don't think they're adults but there's more uh like a, a granular type of of rule system and it's all at will so you can just fire them if they don't follow those rules in canada we tend to take more nuanced approaches in the first place because of how expensive it is to fire people uh, and because of employee rights. But even aside from rules and regulations and policies and contracts, at the end of the day, these are two adults in front of you, uh, maybe three, maybe four, if you know, it's particularly interesting. But if, if it's only two people in front of you, they're adults that have, have hopefully made an informed consensual choice and then just have a conversation. And now, while we usually ask our guest experts for a list of their favorite things, well, given today's romantic topic, we're doing something extra special. We're gonna ask you to identify some famous couples in love based on clues. Are you ready, Lisa? I am. Okay, let's get started with the first one. In April of 2014, the world's most 
eligible bachelor became engaged to this human rights lawyer. Uh, George Clooney. <laughs> and Amara. <laughs> or uh, Amala. That's right. George Clooney and Amal Alamuddin. All right. That's the first one down. One out of seven? Is it seven? Seven seemed like a good number when I was Googling these answers. Okay, let's do number two. Long before volleyball, this castaway fell in love with a different Wilson, his longtime partner and fellow actor. Rita Wilson and Tom... Oh my goodness! <laughs> Tom Stalin, but it's, it's like Tom who did the inauguration. Um, okay, that's just totally a brain freeze. Tom Hanks, pretty close. Okay. <laughs> but I remember his wife's name. Of course, Tom Hanks. Yes, 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 Tom Hanks. Of course, Tom Hanks. We'll give it to you. Okay, here's the third one. The straight out of the Stone Age couple argued a lot, but there's no denying that these two had a rock solid relationship and a gay old time. Um, Fred Flintstone and Wilma. Perfect. You are pretty good at these. Okay, how about this one? Let's see if we stump you. There was a time when the queen bee was just another single lady, but with a relationship that took time to blossom, one of the most famous music couples is now crazy in love. Is it Beyonce and Jay-Z? It's Beyonce and Jay-Z. From the Stone Age to the New Age, you get them all right. All right, let's try this one. Laughs were aplenty between this TV sitcom's first interracial celebrity couple who blended his bilingual outbursts with her kooky antics. Ooh. Is it a real-life relationship or a TV romance? It's both. Oh. I don't know that one. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Okay, I should know about Lucille Ball. She's a firecracker. Okay, yes, yes, that's very good one. Okay, let's see if you can continue on with your firecracker performance. Let's see if you can identify this famous couple. While most newlyweds may spend more time together in bed than not in the days following marriage, the famous musician and his artist wife stayed under the covers for a two-week log bed in for peace. Who's the famous couple, Lisa? John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Well, I just can't seem to stump you today. Okay, let's do the last one. Even though he was the alien, it was his earthling roommate whom he found out of this world. Lisa, can you name this famous celebrity couple? Mark and Mindy. <laughs> Mark and Mindy is correct. Six out of seven today. Amazing job and amazing insight in today's conversation. Lisa, it has been just an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Jeff, thanks for having me. This is, this is a fun topic. Uh, you know, talking about harassment is like not the best kind of conversation, but romance in the workplace is, is uh, way more fun. So thank you for having me. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank everyone for listening in. I know it's tough to find time to carve out for thought leadership, and I appreciate you, the listener, for making the time for us. Anything we can do to help ourselves get better at something is time well spent. On our next episode, we'll be talking with more HR experts about today's most important HR issues. I'm Jeff Livingston. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind. 
We'll see you soon on our next episode of ADP's Insights at Work. <laughs>